Welcome to the Free Life Agents Podcast, where we help real estate agents build a lifestyle they never need a vacation from. Here's your host, Kobe Zen. Hey guys, welcome back to the Free Life Agents Podcast. So today we are joined by a guest, once again from overseas, and he is a real estate specialist in Japan, and he is going to be talking all about his experience in real estate, um, you know, internationally, and then how, what he's doing right now in terms of helping investors and uh, working in the real estate sector in Japan. I think that you guys are going to learn a lot of interesting things here today in this episode, um, learning how, you know, real estate works in Japan and how it is, is a little bit different than uh, really uh, most from most places in the world. But without further ado, I want to introduce my guests. Uh, today ziv ziv welcome to the show how's it going hey good man good to be here yeah it's really good to, to have you on uh, on the podcast i know you um do a lot of uh, content yourself uh when it comes to the real estate space educating uh buyers and uh, investors of you know you know moving in and essentially buying a property in japan so we're going to get into all of that today but before we kind of get started here for those who don't know who you are who don't follow your content would you just mind uh, given our audience here a little bit of uh, background on yourself, how you got started in real estate and uh, why you're doing what you're currently doing right now. Yeah, sure. So um, I was born and bred in Israel. And then in my late 20s, I've uh, relocated, migrated to Australia. So at this point, I've got um, both citizenships, two passports. And then when I moved to Australia shortly thereafter, I met um, my wife at the time. Uh, who was Japanese. I had no idea about Japan whatsoever. Like I wasn't even a big um, manga or anime fan or, or any other thing, karate master, like any of the things that usually attract people to Japan. I had completely alien to me. Um, but over the years, um, obviously, as we um, dated and lived together and got married, I started coming and going here to visit the family. And I, you know, I got to know the country a little bit better. And then um, when we've been together for about eight years, uh, our son was born. And again, we went to Japan. She wanted to be with her parents when she, um, when she gave birth. So we lived here for about a year, came back to Australia again. And then unfortunately, about a year later, um, she got a really aggressive kind of cancer and passed away. And I was left there with... Um, a child who's a year and a half old. I wasn't too concerned about the connection to Israel because I'm Israeli through and through. So that was always going to be uh, there for him. But I really wanted to keep the connection to Japan alive um, for him. So I was looking for a way to get um, not just residency because that wasn't the problem, but also a financial foothold, something that would enable us to live there and go there regularly if we needed to and um, just keep me coming back and keep the connection alive for him. I had one property in Australia at the time that I've inherited from a, a relative who passed away. So I was kind of a, a very basic level landlord in the sense that I was just renting that property out, collecting income and watching market trends to see what would be attractive. So for me, the easiest, rather the only route to invest in anything that I knew at least a little bit about was real estate. So. I took our savings and invested in property in Japan and Japan being Japan. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later, but um, it's a very unique environment in the sense that um, it's really difficult for, 
foreigners, especially non-resident foreigners, to do any kind of business here. Um, just the, the language and cultural gaps are huge. More from the Japanese side. So, I mean, you as a foreigner, you might be willing to go the extra mile and put in whatever needs to be done to, to actually bridge that gap. But for the Japanese, we've got a very large domestic market and they're kind of isolated being physically an island and also culturally isolated from their neighbors. They're very different. They often just don't know how to work with foreigners. They definitely can't do anything in English. They don't even know how to receive SENS funds overseas. Um, all of those things are alien uh, to most of them. It's changing a little bit in recent years, but definitely when we started, which was about 10, 11 years ago, um, it was very, very challenging. So my first step was to try and find a business partner. So somebody who's um, boots on the ground in Japan that I could work with to make it happen. And that's how I met um, Chikako, who is uh, my current wife. So we started off as business partners and then you know, one thing led to another and, and we ended up getting married as well. But she helped me purchase our first few um, family portfolio properties in Japan. And as we went through the process of um, purchasing and then managing due diligence, research, everything that comes along with it, we sort of figured out that, hey, there might be quite a few people out there who are in the same spot, who are looking for one reason or another to purchase property in Japan and just can't, can't figure out how to do it. So that's how we started doing what we do these days, which is to help buyers purchase properties in Japan. Um, investment properties and holiday homes are usually our specialty. So the kinds of things that um, people really need help to manage remotely. So if you're a you know, if you're an owner occupier, you're buying your house to live in, you're most likely already a resident or going to be a resident soon. And you're going to be going hand in hand with a realtor to look at properties. So we can help with that, but that's not our, our expertise. We really, um, our added value comes in when we help people do things either remotely or just even if they're in Japan, just hands off. Okay, awesome. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing, Ziv. And, um, and maybe I think this is a really good a point for us to kind of talk a little bit more about um, the process of purchasing real estate in Japan, right? And I think it's really good for, you know, it's a really good uh, transition point in terms of, you know, you buying your first property uh, in Japan. And I think, you know, maybe you can tell us that story of, you know, what went into it, you know, what help you got, obviously, you know, you got some help, but like what went into it, what help you got, and then what are some of the challenges that uh, you ran into as well? Because I think that would be probably, uh, a pretty good way to kind of paint a good picture of, you know, what is it like to actually purchase a, a you know, property in Japan? Sure. So the basics in theory are pretty much what you're used to from most other countries, or at least from first world countries, anywhere that's got a, you know, a paper trail and a legal key, a recourse sort of option. So it's not really that different. You do um, your research on the area that you want to purchase. You do your due diligence on the property that you want to purchase. Um, you hook up with the realtor who's listing the property. Um, you run through the documents, confirm that everything that you found out um, via email or, or just voice conversations is actually reflected in official documents, which is usually going to be the case. Um, sign a contract, pay a 10% deposit is the norm. And then somewhere between two to three weeks down the track, settlement happens. You pay the rest of the money. You pay also the settlement adjustment. So Property tax might have been paid in advance. You um, credit the seller for that. He might have received rent in advance. He credits you for that. It's the same sort of thing you do anywhere else. Um, 
sign a few legal documents and two or three weeks later, a new title deed registration document comes from the Legal Affairs Bureau, which um, testifies that the property was transferred over your name. And the parties at play are similar to what you'd expect anywhere else. So you've got your uh, real estate agent, you've got a property lawyer, they're called judicial scriveners here. You've got an insurance company, a property manager. If it's a, if it's a unit in a condo block, you've got a building management company, pay your, um, I think in the US they're called HOA fees or um, body corp in, the, in Australia. So pretty much the same process in theory. And the differences are really in the type of due diligence that you wanna do on the properties and on the management of the relationships themselves uh, along the way. And that, that's where the major differences come in. So it's not in, the, um, it's not in the actual theoretical process. It's more in the how things are actually done along the way. And that, that's a little bit different. Okay, yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of, um, if, I'm, if I'm hearing this correctly, so in terms of the actual process and the actual logistics that go into purchasing a property are very similar as it would be you know, in any other country across the world, but... Uh, the, the major difference is essentially in the uh, in the relationships and the essentially how to handle the the cultural differences, maybe some of the cultural nuances that are a little bit different. Uh, is that correct? Yes, and also because Japan has unique market fundamentals that are a little bit different to other countries or to most other countries at least, and the type of research and due diligence, the uh, the T's and the I's that you dot and cross are might be slightly different to what you're looking at in other countries. So, for example. Um, Japan is generally speaking not a capital growth kind of environment. People don't come to invest here hoping that the property is going to double in value over the next five or 10 years. And if and when that happens, it's great. It's icing on the cake, but that's not something that anybody would be really banking on. And there's various reasons for that, but the result is that people actually purchase here for cash flow, for the hassle-free nature of the properties. So the tenants are very docile. The, um, the companies, the third parties that you deal with on a regular basis are super by the book and professional. So it's a relatively headache-free investment. And also it's um, quite affordable as opposed, I mean, there are a few cities in Japan that are not as affordable, but most of the country is still very affordable. So it also, it's a very good diversity place. So for the price of a single asset uh, in another country, you might get three or four or five of them here. Um, which obviously gives you socioeconomic diversity, it gives you financial diversity, you know, uh, tenant moves out, you've still got five or six tenants that are paying the rent, that sort of thing. So those different market fundamentals dictate a different type of research and due diligence that you'd want to do when you're actually choosing the property that you want to go for. Oh, okay, yeah. So, and in, in terms of what you're working with, uh, you know, in terms of clients, right? So you work with uh, mostly clients from overseas and uh, foreign investors. Um, are you seeing that most of them are uh, staying staying foreign? So in terms of uh, they're investing in the property, but they're not uh, actually looking to move uh, to Japan. And I, I would assume that's the case. And you know, when when you're working with most of these clients, you know, what kind of goes into overseas or uh, you know you know cross border management when it comes to you know owning a and purchasing a property uh, over in Japan. So, yes, I'd say about 80% of our customers are non-residents. Um, the people who buy holiday homes usually have a bigger affinity than the investors, so they might at some point consider uh, moving here or at least um, being here on a more regular basis every year, as opposed to investors who are usually uh, quite content being fully remote. But 20% of them do live in Japan, so we also represent a lot of people who are living here but either just don't have the language skills or the bandwidth or just are not interested in doing things on their own. 
And what goes into that is, I guess, as with any type of remote investment, um, when you're investing in your backyard, the due diligence that you're focusing on is usually um, stuff that you're familiar with. You're checking on the property, the condition of the property, and you might be looking at it physically yourself, doing a drive-through or actually entering the property and looking at the inside. Um, when you're investing remotely, the due diligence changes. So because you're not there physically, and that could be out of state, out of country, out of continent, doesn't matter, because you're not going to be there regularly and you probably don't have a deep familiarity with the market, the due diligence that you're going to be doing is focused a lot more on the team that are going to be doing things on your behalf, right? So instead of looking particularly at a property and a city and a street, you're looking for the right kind of agent or the right kind of buyer's advocate or the right kind of property manager who know that area very well um, or definitely more than you do and can make recommendations. So you really want to focus on picking the right people. And then once you've got the right team established, you can work with them um, you know, with the confidence that even though you maybe don't know the market very well, you've got people who do and are on your side and acting on your behalf. So that's the major part of um, in our perspective, serving international investors um, and holiday home buyers. I mean, the due diligence is a little bit different, but same sort of story. Yeah, that's actually a really good point that you brought up there that um, when you were talking about like investing in foreign real estate is that the due diligence you're doing is mostly on the people that you're going to be working with. So I have a follow-up question to that. And that is, you know, if, you know, let's say, you know, you met with somebody who is a uh, looking to invest in another country or looking to invest overseas um, in, a, in a different area, you know, maybe, you know, here in the United States, maybe they were looking to invest out of state. So in terms of looking for the right people, right, because today, you know, with marketing and messaging, people can say, and, you know, whatever they want to say and make themselves look and sound very good. But in terms of looking for the right, you know, the right team, the right manage, uh, management company, the right people who are going to help you in terms of a foreign investment or a, you know, out of area investment, what do you think are some of the key points that uh, you should be looking for um, some key tells that, you know, this is a good team to work with? Um, well, first off, I, I, I probably preface that by saying that, um, yes, the internet has made a lot more people to choose from more readily available, but it really wasn't that different before the internet as well, right? Like, you know, if people were putting their, um, their spiel on posters or newspaper ads or flyers in your mailbox, they could still say whatever they wanted. So it hasn't really right. changed much. And I think the same fundamentals apply um, these days as well. Um, I think the top, really the best way to pick between potential team members is word of mouth. And not necessarily the word of mouth that they would, I mean, obviously we as well, if somebody contacts us and they want to feel more safe and secure, then yes, we'd refer them to an existing customer who can give them um, you know, their experience of working with us and hopefully set their mind at ease. But because the internet is out there, um, you can definitely gauge um, people's presence and integrity and authority, you know, just, just know-how of what they're doing online in most cases. So it's a matter of reading reviews. It's a matter of you know, going into industry forums and groups and seeing who are the people that come up regularly, um, A, because they post regularly. And when they post, are they posting marketing stuff or are they actually posting knowledge? Are they actually contributing to conversations with um, deep know-how that's not necessarily sales oriented? 
And you also look at who people are referring you to. So if you ask in a public group, you know, who should I speak to about property management in this and that town or this and that state, if the same name comes up four, five, six times from different people that are not related to each other in a public group, it's probably a good place to start, right? Um, and similarly, I mean, people will, you know, maybe not publicly, but will definitely privately reach out to you and say, oh, maybe watch out for that person or maybe watch out for that company because, you know, we've had some bad experiences with them. The internet has actually made it, I think, easier for us to um, to pinpoint the, um, you know, the, the real operators from the smooth operators kind of thing. Right. And I, I was just thinking that as well, that I, I feel like, you know, the internet has actually made it easier for us to, you know, figure out who's, you know, you know, who's the people who are, you know, just making noise versus the the ones that are actually providing the real value because, you know, we're able to kind of show ourselves and show our knowledge, you know, yeah. in a way that we weren't before. So, the, I mean, that that's one way to be safe, let's call it. Um, to be efficient, I think another thing is once you actually start communicating with these um, potential professionals that you're going to be working with, um, it's a good idea to get just how responsive are they and how um, generous they are with the information that they share. Generally speaking, um, if someone says, you know, if someone doesn't respond in a timely manner before you've actually conducted business with them, there's no reason to think that that's going to change once you've started working with them. And if someone keeps their cards constantly close to their chest and, um, you know, that's my trade secret, I'm not going to tell you that before you pay me. Um, that's maybe a red flag as well. But if someone is responsive and communicative, and it doesn't mean that they're going to work for free, but they do share information freely, and that's probably a, that's probably a good sign that that's somebody that you might want to work with. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, because, you know, I mentioned this because a lot of our, our audience who's listening to this podcast are, are working as real estate agents in the United States or some other countries as well. So one of the things they always say is that, you know, once you're, you know, working with a client who's not necessarily hasn't signed anything with you yet, you know, a prospective client, you know, you're essentially auditioning to, to work with them. You're auditioning to be their partner, to, to, you know, be, be their agent or, you know, be their advisor. And then, you know, how the way you're carrying yourself in the pre-communication before they become a client is actually very important. So, you know, Absolutely. what you're saying. And the, the other thing is that even if you end up for some reason not working with them, I mean, let's, let's face it, at least 50% of the people that communicate with are not going to end up being clients. Right. Um, the fact that you've communicated um, in a professional manner definitely means that they will keep you in mind when somebody else asks them about a potential professional to work with, right? I mean, I'm... I'm very, very happy to constantly give without expecting to get anything back because it does end up coming back tenfold. Yep. That's a wonderful attitude. That's, that's definitely, it, it's a, it, it's, it's surprising to me that not, you know, not enough people actually understand that, that concept, but um, uh, you know, you know, once you start actually giving generously and start providing that value, you know, and you start doing it without any expectations in return, you actually, you know, you'll see it come back tenfold. And then, like you said, that's when you start doing it more and more and it almost becomes something that just comes. Yeah. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong in our case, because we're not actually realtors, we don't, mm -hmm. we're not transactional in nature. We don't actually um, have any particular interest in a customer buying a particular property or, mm -hmm. you know, from a particular agency or whatnot. And we actually charge for our time in advance. So if somebody wants us to work for them and start researching and doing due diligence and finding the right property, they do need to pay us for our time. So we're not like um, your typical realtor who gets paid uh, post-settlement on the deal itself. 
So we do definitely charge people for our time, but not, not to share information, right? So if we work for you, then yes, you need to pay us. But if you're asking us questions that we know the answers for, there's absolutely no reason for us not to give them to you. Right. And that, that just kind of comes down to a, you know, a point of like integrity, right? If somebody kind of asks you a question and then you know it, you have the value, you can actually help them, you know, would you withhold that information because you're trying to mislead them? You know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of a blurry, blurry line almost in, in that, that point of uh, thinking from that point of view. So, yeah. And I think um, th there's no reason to really be concerned about that because there's a huge difference between your expertise in a general manner when you're giving advice and divulging information and you know guiding people in the right direction is one thing. When they actually get down into doing a deal with you and your expertise comes into effect when it's you know laser focused on a particular deal or a particular property, um, it very quickly becomes apparent why they're working with you. So the fact that you've given them all of this general information doesn't actually mean that they're going to be able to go and do it on their own. And some of them will, and that's absolutely great as well. Yeah, I mean, like, and one of the things that I think people, you know, are more realizing now in terms of like people are business owners, not just in the real estate space, but like other spaces as well. You know, a lot of the big influencers like on the internet that are teaching people how to market are saying that you always provide value first so that they come back for more value in the future. And that's the only way to get somebody is that if you help them for one time, they're going to come back for, for more help, essentially. Absolutely, and, absolutely. You know, yeah, when it comes to a business perspective, that just means more money, uh, right, in your pocket or a higher, higher product, higher price product. But yeah. um, I think, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to, you know, kind of transition into a, another question here. And that kind of leads, uh, you know, kind of similarly to what we we're talking about before, but a little bit more like in terms of your, your personal experience and what, you know, what you're doing. Um, yep. And I think this is a question for a lot of our, our you know, business owner or, or agent listeners here. So, um, you know, in terms of what you're doing right now for marketing or, you know, what you're putting out content, you know, where do you see most of your, your clientele and most of your leads coming from? Is it from referrals or is it directly from the information you're putting out online? Um, so we don't do any paid advertising of any, uh, any sorts, uh, from the get go, our, our motto was just to provide constant information on as many channels as we can. Naturally, over the years, I've drifted towards the channels that I personally feel more comfortable with. I don't think that there's a preferred channel for anything. I mean, um, I'm sure that we could get, for example, excellent, uh, excellent business via um, TikTok, or if we you know focus more on videos as opposed to audio. I think there's there's business to be had in in each and every channel. For me personally, just throughout my years of experience working in various companies and you know the things that I know that I'm better at, um, I found that written word and audio tend to generate the best results for me. So our content usually obviously goes out to our website first and then from our website, we propagate it on various social media channels. We are getting, we're active or semi-active on almost all of them or at least all of the, um, the prominent ones. We're getting the best results from our podcast, from Facebook, and from LinkedIn. Um, and that's usually via the form of either, um, either people finding our content and then contacting us once they've been exposed to it enough and are in a position to make contact, um, or by people who know us on those channels um, who re recommend us to other people on the social media platforms. Um, or just via yeah word of mouth people that we've done business with and uh, are you know are happy with the results and then they connect us to somebody else. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that's, it's important when you're putting out content, um, like you're, like we we're just talking about, right. When you're putting out content on something that you feel comfortable with, you're essentially providing that value, uh, for free. And you're, it's just social media. It's just a way, or the internet, it's just a way for you to do, you know, what people were doing in the past, except you're just reaching a, a wider audience. Is that kind of like your, your take on, uh, the value and the content that you're putting out there as well, that it's, you know, it's not much different. You're not trying to go, go viral or anything. You're just, making sure that it gets reached, it reaches more people than it used to. Yeah. So our own platforms, our own social media channels, and we do a lot of publications for third party publications oh. that are interested in this kind of contact. So magazines and that publish um, stuff about Asia Pacific real estate or international real estate or a general real estate investment um, or lifestyle holiday homes kind of um, mm-hmm. publications as well. And um, I mean, look, I, I'd love to be, comfortable and successful just you know looking at my phone and recording a video but I, i'm just <laughs> i'm not good at that but um i'm very like these kinds of conversations when i'm actually talking to a, a potential customer or talking to someone like you on a, on a podcast or a different channel are very good for me recording um audio directly just me explaining about stuff seminars webinars work very well for me and written word as well so I focus on that and our marketing team that we hire can focus on other things as well. So they can um, rip some of the video content in shorter segments to put on other platforms from the videos that I've recorded. They can record their own videos um, explaining about stuff that we've talked about, you know, this week via email. Um, they can be more active depending on who the person is, what their age is and uh, how comfortable they are. They might be more Instagram, more TikTok oriented, what have you. And um, we're always exploring, always happy to touch. But if it's me personally providing content, then yeah, written word and audio is usually where I um, where I lean towards. Right, and and when you're doing that, like you're you're doing a, a form of content where you're you're more comfortable with. Um, and are you are you seeing that you're reaching more people that you are more inclined to work with in terms of like the, the, the right demographics or the right types of personalities? Um, that seems to be a derivative of just being honest, right? So, <laughs> for example, if I was to put out really, really salesy, pitchy kind of content, like come here for the best deals or come get your stuff, I mean, I guess I would attract different kinds of clientele. The fact that we always try to present the good along with the bad, the advantages with the disadvantages, and honestly explain to people what's possible or not possible that tends to sift out the clients who are probably not suitable for us to work with. Um, but there's also just a personal compatibility thing. Like we've, you know, we've got not many, um, thankfully, but we do have a few clients that, you know, we just had a very short trans- uh, very short interaction with before they became clients. Um, and as we started working with them, we recognized that just on a personal level, they're not the kind of person that we're comfortable working with. Um, so we're not going to di- you know, ditch them by the wayside and tell them to go somewhere else, but we're not going to actively encourage them to purchase more through us kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like that's always a, it's always good to only work with, you know, your, your ideal customers, right? Your, your, your ideal kind of clientele versus trying to force yourself to work with somebody that you're not necessarily comfortable working with. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, kind of like on the same, same topic of, you know, of clients, um, from what the deals that, you know, or, or the, the people that you've helped and the transactions that you've uh, been a part of in terms of helping people do their due diligence, their research, uh, guiding them in your advisory, you know, what, you know, where, where do you see most of the, um, most of the investors or the foreign investors are from and 
what usually are, or is there not like a single kind of typical demographic of people who are, you know, looking to invest in, in real estate in Japan? Um, it's very location oriented, I find. Mm -hmm. um, and the locations as well change with kind of the ebbs and flows of global economy. So when we started, for example, um, back in 2000, end of 2011, beginning of 2012, mm -hmm. the world was still um, maybe not in the midst of, but just on the edge of starting to recover from the global financial crisis of 2008 mm -hmm. and nine. So at that time, for example, in the USA, there were so many good deals to be had and um, ex foreclosure properties, properties that just came on the market because people couldn't afford them anymore. And um, so we didn't get too many customers from the US. Everybody was really happy doing deals in their own backyard or cross state or whatever you guys do there. <laughs> we at that time, because we were also based in Australia and, you know, had quite a few acquaintances in Australia. So we got heaps of Australians customers and um, as well, Singapore and Hong Kong based customers. And the reason I think the reason it was mainly those three countries is because those three countries um, property markets are very, very expensive. They're some of the highest priced uh, locations in the world. And the market, especially in Singapore and Hong Kong, is very limited size-wise. I mean, there's only so much property that you can have on a little city island kind of thing. So people from Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong always tend to be internationally oriented, always looking outside for the best kind of deals. And the yields that they can get back home are very, um, very small as well. So they're always looking for anything that will generate more than the 2 or 3 or 4% that they can get there. So when we started, we had a lot of families from these two, uh, three countries, and then the types of customers vary. So in Australia, it's mostly early middle-aged professionals, I'd say. So um, individuals or couples in their mid-30s to maybe early 50s. Um, who have a career and have savings and use their savings to invest in various uh, various uh, uh, vehicles. And then from Singapore and Hong Kong, they trend a little bit older. So we have a lot of um, 50s, 60s, even early 70s um, retirees or semi-retirees. Uh, sometimes we get... Um, high net worth individuals who then have staff that handle the purchases on their behalf. So we're often not working directly with the buyer, but with their um, management office or asset managers and so forth. And then as the global economy recovered and you know property prices started going up in Europe and the USA and Canada, then we started getting more customers from those locations because there weren't as many deals in their backyard. So the US and Canadian customers um, are quite similar to the Australian New Zealand customers, as in middle-aged professionals. Um, we These days, we also get customers from um, kind of old Europe, um, Germany, Switzerland, uh, sometimes France, and some other Asian countries like Malaysia, Thailand. And in those countries, we see more family offices. So there'd be... Um, say two brothers and a sister or a father and a, a few children who are in, they've got a family office which invests on behalf of the family. And that tends to be the case in some of the countries in Europe and a lot of the Asian countries. Um, and, that, and in that case, the actual end customer, although again, we're not always in direct contact with them, but the actual end customer is like a variety. It can be a mix of younger and older people, just a family office. Right, so it sounds like you work with a, you know, 
clients from a lot of different demographics and more importantly, a lot of different cultures as well. Um, yes, and we do occasionally um, get quite a few um, just people starting out, like people in their mid to late twenties. We you know have some twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand bucks savings, and they just want to dip their toes into the property investment market. They're looking for the cheapest property that they can buy that actually generates yield. Um, so we do get quite a few of those, but again, with honesty being put on the table, we have to tell them that, uh, yes, it's possible to buy properties at 20 or 30,000 us, but here are the uh, caveats that come with these kinds of properties. So yes, they're going to be generating income, but tenant profile is a little bit less attractive. The locations are a little bit less attractive as time passes, because it's an older building in a smaller unit, there's going to be more maintenance costs. Um, so that sometimes filters some of these people out. Wow. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the, you know, kind of going back into the, the conversation of, you know, the honesty, the honesty with, with their clients. Right. Um, and I think it is, you know, I think people in the, in the U S or yeah, definitely in the U S but like gotten used to the dollars um, you know, <clears throat> down payment and then buying a, you know, a much more expensive property with that. So, you know, the markets around the world are a little bit different. And that kind of leads into the, the next question I was really curious about is that, you know, you obviously come from a, a variety of different cultural backgrounds or you have experience in the different cultural backgrounds, you know, you know, you're from Israel and then you were in Australia for a while. And then now, you know, obviously you're, you're working in Japan and then you work with, you know, clients from sounds like all around the world and almost every continent. So, you know, how has that kind of translated where, you know, the, the cultural, different cultural backgrounds that you've experienced and how has that helped you in terms of working with different clients from different backgrounds, different, different cultural backgrounds, or just like the specific stories that, that you have that, you know, come to mind? <laughs> um, well, first of all, we don't have any customers from Africa yet. Looking forward to that one. Um, but all other continents, I think, we, oh, not Antarctica as well, but all other continents, I think. Right. <laughs> Um, look, they're just different, right? Um, I mean, Australia and Singapore, I'm probably most comfortable with because their mentality is very similar to Israelis. I mean, they're very casual in their conversation. They're very, um, I mean, they get right to the point that they're focused on actual numbers and details and they move quick. So I'm comfortable with that, as opposed to the Japanese side, which are completely not comfortable with that, but that's why we exist. So to bridge that gap, right? Right. Um, uh, with the US and Canada and some of the countries in Europe, um, I guess they're a lot more opportunity oriented, or maybe I should call it um, scam wary <laughs> compared to other <laughs> okay. countries. So. They're always double and triple checking, like an Australian or a Singaporean or a Hong Kongese. Um, once they've, you know, they've ticked a few check boxes, they recognize that you exist. The company is out there, and you know they're more internationally oriented in the sense that they know they can always hop over on a plane and come over and just um, kick your bum if you've done something wrong. <laughs> U.S., Canadians, Europeans tend to be a bit more wary, at least initially. Um, they want a lot more um, credibility before they actually pull the trigger. So. We've got, um, you know, what we prepared when we just started working and it's still, we use it to this day with these customers as a credibility pack. So it's a letter from our um, accountant, from the property lawyer that we regularly work with, um, some customer references that are contactable, people that they can actually reach out to and speak. We send them um, 
articles explaining about how Japan's got full legal recourse about everything. So if at any point they feel that they want to reach out and, and get their money back because somebody took it from them, there's always a legal path that they can follow. So we've got, we've prepackaged all of that information and we send it to these customers um, almost before they request it, right? We, we immediately let them know that there's an option to get that if they want to. And that makes things a little bit easier. Um, otherwise, yeah, I mean, they're all different mentality-wise, but um, investors are investors. They're, they're looking for the best deals usually, and they know how to run the numbers, and they're very comfortable to act quickly. And holiday home shoppers um, are holiday home shoppers. They're looking for a beautiful place that they can call home when they come to visit a particular country. They're usually already familiar, at least slightly, with the country and the um, you know the mentality of the Japanese, because obviously, otherwise, they wouldn't be looking for a holiday home in this particular country. And so, with them, the education needs to be a little bit more about what you can actually get for the budget that you have, and what you should be looking at, and what you should be expecting down the track. So, holiday home shoppers are not necessarily practiced real estate purchasers. They might have purchased a you know a home that they live in and another holiday home somewhere else in another country, but they're not necessarily going to be aware of what they need to look at down the track as far as maintenance goes, annual fees for various things. So there's more education involved in that, whereas with the investors, there's more education that's involved in um, how things are actually done, what you can expect and not expect from the Japanese entities that you work with as opposed to the country that you're coming from. So there's a whole lot of education involved, but I think it's more related to the types of buyers than it is to where they're coming from right yeah that make that does make a lot of sense as well because you know it's the same thing i think across different different countries as well where you know somebody who's looking to you know they're like you say you know maybe a high net worth individual looking to buy a vacation home versus somebody who's just a you know very numbers oriented investor who's buying this property as a business you know that's a that's two very different perspectives and they share a lot of similarities you know it doesn't really matter what culture cultural background they have yeah i guess if there's anything that i can add is that to my surprise because i haven't worked with investors in my uh, previous careers um to my surprise um people who are actually buying high ticket items and expensive properties are a lot more casual and easy to work <laughs> with than somebody who's looking for the cheapest possible deal and i mean it does make sense because if you know you're this is it this is your entire life savings and you, you want to make sure you're making the right decision you're going to be a bit more stressful than somebody who's already been around the block a few times um but it was surprising like i, I get the customers that we get th that are most time consuming for us are the ones that are buying 20 30 40 000, uh, properties whereas the people who have you know portfolios that are spending a million or a bit more are usually very laid back yeah Definitely. That's definitely the same way. Um, you know, I think everywhere <laughs> when it comes, when it comes down to the type of clients that you're working with, and that's exactly right. What you said, you know, somebody who's, you know, have a little bit more to lose, um, they're a little bit more laid back and, you know, it doesn't really give us an excuse to, you know, be laxed with their, with their money <laughs> or their oh, investment. No, absolutely not. Yeah. No, and just from, a, uh, how can I say from a bandwidth perspective, like the amount of yeah, time yeah. that I spend, putting people's concerns at ease seems to be geared towards the, uh, the right. lower end yeah. of the market. Yeah. Yep. No, that definitely makes sense. I, that's the same way um, that why I know for sure, definitely in the United States as well. I don't know, maybe, you know, different countries are a little bit different, but I, I would assume not, I don't know, assume it's uh, the same way, but, you know, kind of, kind of going down another, another rabbit hole here uh, for the uh, DMS side. 
I'm really curious to learn, you know, you know, clearly there's enough foreign investors looking to buy investment properties, or at least, you know, just buy a property in Japan where there's, you know, it's keeping you guys, uh, you know, flourishing as, as a business. So what are some of the major benefits and the major unique points of, you know, somebody who's investing in a property in Japan versus just, you know, real estate anywhere? Um, from an invest, investment yep. perspective or any property? Uh, from an investment perspective first. Okay, so first we've already mentioned it's very much a cash flow market. Don't come here looking for speculative plays and capital growth and you know um, flipping properties and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's done here, but it's done by real estate companies that do that on a regular basis. It's not something that your um, individual investor would be getting into. <laughs> So you buy here for long-term hold, buy and hold, you get your um, money in the bank via rental income every month, and you're usually going to have very few headaches along the way. Um, the way that the agencies and the other professionals that you work with here um, work is quite different to what you used to overseas. So we've, we've briefly touched on the fact that relationships are really a big part of it here. Yeah. And you have to sort of understand when you're entering this market is that first off, it's the world's second biggest market. So the US is number one, uh, transaction and capital wise, I think Japan is number two. And it's a very big, very liquid, very fast market, especially on the lower end of the scale where you're talking about cheaper properties. And there is a huge amount of domestic demand, um, supply as well as demand, right? So, and the Culture and uh, the, the professionals that you're working with are very culturally isolated. In the vast majority of cases, they never would have worked with a foreigner before. Mm -hmm. So the mentality that we're used to from other countries where, you know, um, the customer is king and, you know, that the professionals are going to do their utmost uh, best to work with them and convince them to work with them. And sure, they'll bend over backwards to do anything that you ask them to do. That's just not going to happen here. So... If you come in, typically, as we do in the West, I've made the same mistake myself when I started purchasing. If you come here all guns blazing and, you know, I got the cash and now you give me, go get me the best properties, go, go hunt the best properties that you can for me, you're not going to get a single person to call you back. It's just not how it's done here. So you need to be very conscious of their very proper process and manners oriented. There's a right way to do everything. Um and there's a right way to reject a deal when it's presented to you. So you don't, it's very rare here that you'd have an agent that you can sort of sick on, go find me a property. What you're usually gonna be doing is you're gonna be contacting listing agents and a huge variety of listing agents in whichever city you're looking at. And they would be listing properties um, on various um, MLS websites and their own channels. And if you're interested in the property, you're gonna make a polite, gentle approach to that person and say that you're interested in the property and you'd like to hear more about the details that are maybe not apparent in the listing and so forth. If and when you do strike that relationship and you start toing and froing about a particular property, which is already rare in Japan because most of the agents, as soon as they see a foreign name on the email or, or you, know, you, you send them an email in English, most of them will just enter freeze mode and not reply. So if you've actually managed to strike a relationship with somebody and they're corresponding with you, um, it's a good idea to treasure that relationship. And then if for some reason you're not going for that particular property that they've listed and you want them to send you more properties in their region or in their field of expertise, 
you need to explain to them why you're not going to go for this property with a lot of thanks yous and pleases along the way. So thank you very much for sending me that information. It was very interesting. I'm a little bit concerned about A, B, and C. So I understand this property might be right for somebody else, but maybe not for me. And if you could find something that does satisfy those requirements, I would be very happy to hear from you. And then the next week you send them another polite reminder email. If you handle your relationship this way, you've got a chance of actually doing business with the Japanese. If you come in with a, no, oh, this, this one's crap. Give me another one. You're never going to hear back from me again. Right. So it's not me. Sorry, me. We specifically are used to working yeah. with foreigners, but not from your typical Japanese realtor. And the same thing goes when you're hunting for a property manager or you're hunting for a renovation specialist or whoever it is that you're dealing with. Um, you want to keep it polite and to the point. If there's something that you think is off in information that you've received, address it respectfully try to get to the bottom of it, because in many cases, it's not even going to be correct. You're just making assumptions based on other countries that you've worked in. Like, for example, when we purchased our first investment properties, it was three units in the same building. So it's kind of like a bulk deal from a single uh, seller who wanted to sell all three of them. The three were almost completely identical. So different floors of the same building, but all the same size, same layout. Um, two of them were generating X income. One of them was generating X minus 30 bucks or 20 bucks, something like that, right? And in my mind is there's no reason that tenant wouldn't be paying the same as the other two tenants. And as soon as we purchased, it was, oh, look, he's almost about to renew his lease. So let's tell him we're raising the rent, right? And for me, that was like a given, you know, I'm any other country, this is what I do. This is the average rent that's being paid by two other properties. Why would this person not pay this property? Why would this person not pay this rent? And the property manager, again, being Japanese, was very polite about it and was, are you sure that you want to do that? Because that's unusual to raise the rent. And then, no, 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 raise it. And the tenant immediately moved out. And then it took us like six months to find another tenant. And as we find out, as we would have found out if we would have done proper market research, is the average, I mean, those two tenants that are paying X have actually moved into the property almost 15 years ago when rents were higher. And they are now still paying those higher rent because they just don't want to move. I mean, they're comfortable where they are. They don't want to move away. But the average rent is actually now much lower. So that tenant, when he's faced with a, you know, with a rent hike, which is just not going to happen, I mean, you can get a property for almost half that rent amount, then all right, I convinced him to move out, even though he's Japanese and he wants to stay in place, right? So the assumptions that we make as investors coming from a different financial and cultural environment are often wrong. So listen to the professionals and because they're Japanese, they're not gonna be outspoken with their opinion. They're not gonna tell you, no, you're wrong about that. They're just gonna politely kind of go, are you sure about? So you need to listen a lot more, I guess. No, I think that was that was super interesting that uh, what you just told me there, because there's a lot in there. I mean, well, first of all, I think, you know, being a real estate agent in Japan is definitely a, a well, I wouldn't say easier, but like you, you definitely, uh, you know, it might sound, it sounds a lot easier than being a real estate agent in the U.S., right, where you're, you know, you're, you're going out there dealing with clients who, um, you know, I don't know if you, if you if you know what's going on, you know, right now in the market, but, you know, you know, we have a very high seller's market here still, but, you know, a, a buyer comes in with like, you know, $30,000 under, under list price and says, you know, I want this property. You better give me an offer on it. And then the agent has to, has to make an offer on it. Right. That, that yeah. doesn't fly in Japan. Right. That's, that's completely different. It's not done here. I mean, you, 
generally speaking, properties are listed at what they should be listed. People don't ask for crazy prices. There is some negotiation options, but they need to be based on facts, right? So I can, right. if it's a tenanted investment property that's already, already generating income, it's going to be priced based on the income that it generates. And the seller, who's also an investor, knows that. So if I want to discount the price, there better be a really good reason for it. Like, for example, if the building's reserve funds are depleted and I think that building fees are going to go up soon, then yes, maybe that's a reason to ask for a discount. Or if the tenant profile is a little bit risky, that might be a good reason. Or you know, if the average rent that this tenant is paying is higher than market average, and I think that when they move out, I'm going to be getting much less, that's a reasonable reason, but that needs to be noted on the offer. So we are offering a lower price because ABC or because it's 15 minute walk to the nearest train station as opposed to 10. So there needs to be a reason for the discount. And if it's an investment property that's generating income, that usually is not going to be more than 10%. So beyond 10% is in many cases considered offensive to the seller and they might just not even entertain any more offers from you. Um, on holiday homes or on vacant properties, there's a bit more leeway, especially if it's out in the countryside where, um, you know, the population trends are not as attractive as in big cities. Um, but still, within politeness, within reason, um, you don't go in at half price. Nobody would even entertain an offer like that. And then um, on the upside, there's no overbidding here, too. Like if you put in an offer at the listed price, no one's going to come in with a higher offer and take it under. Yeah. Well, I, here's what I think. I think, you know, the agents in the United States can learn a little bit from, you know, the market, the market of, or, you know, how, how, they, how they do business <laughs> over in Japan, right? You know, you know, base it on facts, you know, so for the clients as well, like base it on facts and then, you know, be polite because that's an issue that, you know, we see all the time and it's just normal now that people are rude and they don't, really? they don't base their offers on facts. So. Well, I mean, look, with owner-occupier homes, you're basically selling a lifestyle and a dream and that, you know, a person might fall in love with the property and would pay more for it. I guess that would be the case if I was dealing in owner-occupied homes here as well. Um, but I'm getting a feeling it would be a little bit more within reason. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, definitely within reason. I think we, I heard a story of a, you know, a luxury property in, in Seattle that didn't, you know, they offer, I think, couple million over over the list price and it didn't even didn't even budge so yeah. um that'll tell you a little bit about how the market works over here you know a lot less a lot less polite a lot less um you know a lot less based on based on facts than it is in japan so maybe something we can take away you know here in the u.s yeah i mean another attractive factor here is that the um Again, everything is by the book, and that includes the realtors too. So let's say, for example, you put in an offer at a 10% discount or whatever it was, and the offer was accepted. Um, but then, you know, before signing the contract, somebody actually came in with an offer at, at the listed price. Um, or even before the offer was accepted, let's say, um, you know, the owner hasn't really accepted your offer yet. They're still thinking about it, and a higher offer comes in. They're going to give you the option to raise your price. So they're going to come back to you and say, look, um, you've made this offer and the owner entertained it, but then a higher offer comes in. Before we say yes to that second buyer, would you like to raise your price to that same level because you were first in line, right? Wow. And if the offer was already accepted and the contract is going through, many times that realtor will not even forward any other offers to that seller because, you know, the word was given, the things are moving forward according to plan, and we're proceeding with this. So they're going to say to the higher bidder, sorry, but it's already under process, right? 
Um, that releases a lot of the pressure on, on buyers, I think, as well. So we, we tend to enjoy that dynamic. Yeah, no, I think it, it certainly does. Um, you know, if people are by the, actually buy the book like that, um, you can, there's a lot of, you know, like a trust factor inside of where, you know, you made the offer and it was accepted, you know, not somebody else can just come in and yeah. take it away from you. So. But the other side of that coin is that you as a buyer, again, should be um, considerate and respectful of the sellers and, and realtors yeah. time. So for example, it's very common. I know it's common in Australia. I don't have much experience in the US, but in Australia, it's very common to submit offers on seven different properties that you like. And then if you know your offers are accepted on three of them, you just pick the one that you want and just yeah. disregard the rest, right? You can't do that here. If you've submitted an offer here, there's no legal, there's nothing that's legally binding. So officially, yes, you can pull back the offer, even though there's no real reasoning for it, except you got cold feet or you found a better property. But if you do that, that agent will never work with you again, right? So it's expected here that you're gonna be submitting your offers one at a time on the property that you find most attractive, if that goes through, you're not going to be submitting other, unless you got the budget to, you know, go buy in three and four of them, that's fine. But if this is your budget and this is the property that you submitted an offer on and the offer was accepted, it's now, um, it's now assumed that you're going forward with it unless anything in the due diligence process turns out that, you know, things are not as attractive. And then you would be giving a very good reason to pull back the offer. You're not just going to say, oh, sorry, I went for another property. So again, the relationship, the trust factor, all of that comes into play from both sides. Yep. And, and it's, I think, you know, it's a, it's a good thing that it's like that. And I think like I was keep, I kept saying before that there's a lot of things that we can take. And I hope some agents listening are, are paying attention to this and not just brushing it off as, you know, this is a different market um, and actually, you know, maybe applying some of this, you know, to your, your current business here, you know, if you're listening in, in the U S or in a different country as well, because it's a lot of trust factor that goes into this. And, you know, once you can, you can give other people the, that trust, you know, you always have that trust returned to you as well. So, you know, before we kind of, you know, move on and wrap this up here, I do want to ask one question that um, I'm, I, you know, I've been dying to ask, I'm curious about because, um, so I have a friend that, um, we'll have a couple of friends that live in Japan, but one of them specifically told me that um, apparently that, you know, because of the way that, you know, the Japanese culture is, you know, like you were just saying before, you know, they're actually able to refuse to sell their property to a foreigner and for no other reason than that they're a foreigner. And I just wanted to see if that was true or if that was just something that they were making up. Um, it is true. Um, we, uh, from a seller's perspective, we very rarely run across it. I mm -hmm. mean, um, sellers would usually want to get their money. They don't really care. We had I think in the entire 10 years that we've been working, 11 years almost now, we had maybe one seller that actually said, I'm not selling to foreigners. Wow. And, but it does happen a lot uh, in the rental market. So mm -hmm. it is, it's not legal, but no one's enforcing <laughs> it. So it is, it is very common, I'd say in most cases, in most cities, um, you need to actually look for landlords and agents that will agree to rent to foreigners. Um, and that that's, it's just bad. I don't really know what to say about that, except that it's not acceptable. I mean, I get where they're coming from, again, with the sense of this, um, the language gap is huge. I mean, people here just don't speak English, right? So if you've got a tenant who is not Japanese or hasn't been living here for a long time or doesn't have the language skills to actually understand 100% what it is that they're signing and what their um, responsibilities and duties are as a tenant, 
people are terrified that there's going to be misunderstanding. People, the, the reason that is, and I, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse for it because, um, you know, all racism is basically based in fear. So I, I get that they're afraid, but I'm not saying that's a good excuse, but to understand the way that they think only, Japanese are extremely averse to conflict. Like from a Japanese perspective, like discussing a price negotiation is already conflict, right? So a tenant, for example, would never come to you at the end of the lease and ask you to reduce the rent, even if the rent is actually much lower in comparable properties at the moment. Um, and if somebody is renting a property to you as a foreigner and you would then down the track not understood something in the signing process or not understood something in what needs to be done on a regular basis between a tenant and the landlord and a leasing agent for them the thought of then entering conflict and argument and debate with you particularly in a language that they absolutely cannot speak or understand um, is terrifying i mean they're just terrified of potential problems that might arise down the track and again, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that's an acceptable way to to manage your business. And I would like for it to change. And we're working with a lot of agents, especially in bigger cities like Tokyo and Osaka. There are at least these days at least a handful of agents that can actually cater to foreigners and are very actively and nobly trying to bridge that gap and convince landlords that it's okay to lease to foreigners and so forth. But it's um, yeah, we've got a long way to go here for that. Yeah, and I and I do think that you know when it comes to it, you know, like you were saying as well that you know people in Japan do things very by the book. They they really don't like conflict. So you know that's that's a big, big difference in the United States where you know you know a fist fight in the street may not be considered conflict for for some people, but you know price negotiation is is conflict there. So I think you know this is goes for both sides as well. So if you're listening and you're thinking about investing in Japan, um, you know, obviously take into consideration the culture that we were just talking about in this conversation here as well. And that, you know, respect the culture that, you know, they've been familiar with and then do everything by the book and then give them the same trust factor that you'll see that. Uh, and it's, um, it's a really good idea to get, um, like if you're investing in Japan on your own, find yourself a Japanese partner or hire a Japanese staffer. Somebody can even be a part-time university student, just anybody who's familiar with how to politely send emails and pick up the phone and talk to people in Japanese, that'll make your life a whole lot easier. Um, or, I mean, depending depending on how much work you're planning to do here, you can always, of course, hire someone like us as well. Right. Yep, definitely. I think that's that's a great tip, Tim. And um, before we wrap this up here, so obviously you do a lot of interesting things in the real estate and the property space as well. But looking forward to, you know, the rest of this year and kind of moving forward with, you know, the evolution of your business what are some things that are coming up in the future that you're working on? Anything exciting that uh, you want us to know about? Uh, you know, feel free to share that right now. Um, yeah, so real estate obviously is still going to be um, primarily what I'm dealing with. But a few months ago, I actually opened a second company that's going to be helping um, foreign investors invest in Japanese businesses. So for a starting point, we're working with the franchises, which is um, obviously business investment is generally higher risk than real estate uh, property investments, but it can also get much higher rewards. So to start off until we get our, our feet under us and you know a few successful businesses under our belt, we're working with Japanese franchises. So for people who are interested in um, investing in a Japanese franchise business as a franchisee and open a store or an office or a shop location that actually already comes with a blueprint and 
training by the franchise headquarters and they hold your hand along the way. They provide you with advertising materials and they just tell you how to do everything um, so that the shop is or the office is operating in full capacity. So we've started doing that a few months ago. We've got our first couple of customers who are now um, actually opening their doors as we speak. So we'll probably start advertising that more uh, heavily on our social media channels and websites once that actually becomes a reality. I mean, it is a reality, but I mean, once they actually start making money off it. And um, the advantage of investing in a business versus real estate is that once you've actually established a business that's generating a certain amount of income every year and you've hired local Japanese staff, it's very easy to then get a business manager visa. So this is a very good solution for people who are actually looking to relocate to Japan and are looking for an investment that will enable them to do that. So the second tier of our company, the second side of the job that we're going to be doing is to provide affordable relocation support services to people who are relocating to Japan. Um, so there are these services on the market, but they're usually geared towards high-end uh, corporate executives that the company pays for. We're looking to provide that service at very affordable prices so that anyone who's starting a business or relocating to work in Japan can actually enjoy these uh, support services. So yeah, that's what I'm excited about for this year. Yeah, that sounds super exciting. And um, for those people who are looking uh, to connect with you, maybe they're interested in investing in a franchise or they're interested in investing in a, in a property or a holiday home in Japan, you know, what are some good ways that uh, people can reach you? And I'll make sure to put the links down in the, in the show notes as well. Yeah, so I'll, um, let me just edit my, how do I edit? There we go. I'll put my name down there. Um, this is my name. So on any social network you look, there's only one of me, I promise. <laughs> Nobody else out there with that name. So Ziv Nakajimam again on most social media channels. The company is called nippontradings.com. That's the website. So Nippon Tradings International. Um, Japan Real Estate Group on Facebook. Again, there's only one that actually has that name, Japan Real Estate. And our page is also on Facebook, Japan Real Estate as well. Um, there are a lot of variations, but those actual words in that order, there's only one of us. So feel free to reach out. Yep, definitely, guys. If you didn't, if you didn't uh, quite catch that, you know, make sure to rewind and make sure you get the words in the right order so you can reach we'll out. We'll put to... in the show. Link LinkedIn is the best yeah. place to reach out to me in person, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we'll, we'll make sure to put the links down in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to Ziv, you can that way. It'd be really easy. But um, thank you, Ziv, for being a guest on the show. I learned a lot about you know what you you're doing and uh, some of the differences between real estate in uh, in Japan and the U.S. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed the conversation. I certainly learned a lot. I hope our listeners did as well. And, um, you know, if you guys find that this was helpful, if you guys found, you know, any nuggets in here that you want to share, or if you guys know somebody that, you know, could really benefit from this episode, make sure to give this a share, give your, uh, give your friend a referral, make sure to send this to them. And uh, if you like, uh, enjoy listening to this podcast, you know, in general, make sure you give it a review, give me some feedback. I'd love to hear what you guys think. And, uh, you know, subscribe if you guys want to, you know, catch up a little next episode. But once again, thank you, Ziv, for being on the show. I know you're super busy, so I'll let you get back to your day. And uh, for our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Free Life Agents Podcast. For more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.freelifeagents.com. We'll see you next time.